Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Hypochondriac's Almanac and I'm recording for you guys on a Sunday morning. This is your host, Sarah, in case you didn't know. And this is a podcast for all of you out there who secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It's not a tumor. We understand, we identify, and we have definitely scoped out WebMD more than our fair share of the times. We're here to talk weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders, folks. But before we get started, we need to talk about those disclaimers. First and foremost, we're not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind. Please, please, please don't take what we say as medical advice. We're not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Don't guess or take what we say on this show as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical field, past, present, and future. Let's jump right in. So it's cold and flu season, and most of you out there have experienced the cold or the flu on some level. But there are so many myths and home remedies and old wives tales and things like that that are floating around out there. So how do you know what is actually true and what actually works? Well, I found this article called Seven Cold Virus and Flu Myths and Questions Debunked. This article originally came out on CBS News. There's no author listed on it. So anyway... Early sunsets and chilly temperatures signal a shift from the itchy, watery eyes and sneezing associated with pollen allergies to the runny noses and coughs of winter cold and flu season. But just how long should these respiratory bugs last and how long are you contagious? Major questions that most of us are asking. Here are some of the answers. Are coughs from colds lasting longer now than before? And the answer to that is probably not. What doctors are now seeing in pediatric clinics is that once a child gets a cold-like illness, like a runny nose and a cough, is that people presume it will be gone within a couple of days, doctors are saying. But that's not exactly right. For most of us, it's a seven-day thing before it will be gone, doctors say. We whine and complain, but it's really self-limiting. How long are people infectious? People are usually infectious for the first few days after symptoms start, particularly the period with a fever. Health guidelines generally recommend keeping kids home from school until the fever is gone for about 24 hours. This also applies to you out there in the workforce. You don't want to make your co-workers sick, do you? Next question, what treatments are recommended? The old joke is that you can take all the best available current medications to treat it and it'll go away in a week. Or you can do nothing and it will go away in seven days. This is kind of a joke, I guess. The reason doctors say is that there's not much clinical trial evidence, which is the gold standard, to tell if over-the-counter medications really help. Even so, fever can be uncomfortable for children and adults, so fever reducers can help. Warm, hot liquid can help make the mucus less sticky and help it drain a little better. That's why having a steam or nice hot bath or hot tea can be very soothing. Honey can also help with coughs. But one important caution is that children under the age of one should not have honey because of the risk of botulism. Next, cold versus influenza. Doctors say that adults don't tend to get a fever with a cold. Now that flu season has begun in every state and most countries, if an adult has a fever and a cough that comes on suddenly, consider influenza. 
At the end of December and early January, most people will see flu, but when a sudden onset of cough, fatigue, and muscle aches hits, you may feel like you've been run over by a truck. Health officials recommend flu vaccinations. That's the best preventative measure out there. And they also say that lab testing is really kind of ridiculous because it takes days to get the results, which is too late to decide on giving any patients medications to deal with antiviral components. But what about coughs after colds? Okay, so you're no longer going through the box of tissues, but then the cough sets in and keeps going. No one knows why such coughs occurs, but they think it, it might have something to do with people's nerves and their sensitivity to various, various kinds of irritants. But that's not really much more than an educated gas doctor is saying. They suggest that saltwater sprays or drops can help dry up the nose to prevent these sorts of coughs. But the good news is that after a couple of weeks of a prolonged cough, people generally are not infectious because they're not bringing up the same level of virus as earlier. And typically they don't have the mucus levels that they had when they were having that full-blown cough. When is a cough more serious? Well, doctors say symptoms of this include coughing to the point where you cannot breathe, throwing up from a cough, difficulty with underlying respiratory conditions like asthma or COPD. A prolonged, more severe wheezing cough could be from whooping cough, which is a bacterial infection. Doctors also say respiratory illness in an infant, particularly in the first few months, is worth having it checked out by a healthcare professional. Ditto for fever in older children that last longer than 48 hours, or if there are symptoms beyond a runny nose and a cough. These can include lethargic actions with low energy levels and breathing quickly or requiring a lot of effort to breathe. And lastly, how do colds and flu spread? They can last on your skin, including your hands, for a couple of hours after a cough or a sneeze. That is why it's important to wash your hands with soap and water often in the first five to seven days of a cold and to use hand sanitizer whenever possible. Don't cough without covering your mouth. Use a tissue if at all possible. You're going to spread it if you don't constantly stay vigilant with that. And once you sneeze and cough and all that, keep washing your hands because it'll help kill off any of the virus or bacteria that is still on your hands. Okay, next article, Manuka honey. Why is it so expensive and what are the health benefits? This article came out a couple weeks ago. The author is Alexandra Thompson and I found it on yahoo.com. I had heard of Manuka honey before but it was a long time ago, so I thought it was interesting to look into this a little bit deeper. But whether drizzled on porridge, added to green smoothie, or eaten neat off a spoon, the health elite swear by Manuka honey to keep them fighting fit. Originating in New Zealand, the antibacterial properties of the natural sweetener have been known for thousands of years. Its distinctive taste comes from the wild manuka tree, which bees forage on, collecting the pricey nectar. It also has some pretty big health claims to live up to. All honey is thought to be antibacterial to some extent due to containing chemicals that release hydrogen peroxide. This destroys bacteria's cell walls and has been used as an antiseptic since the 1920s. In 1991, studies removed 
hydrogen peroxides from different kinds of honey with only Manuka maintaining its bacterial killing properties. This is put down to its uniquely antibacterial ingredients. Off the back of this study, manufacturers added a unique Manuka factor, which is UMF, number to the honey pot's labels. This represents the unique signature compounds characteristic of this honey that ensure purity and quality. Confusingly, though, some labels refer to these antibacterial properties or non-peroxide activity, while others include the potentness of hydrogen peroxide when measuring Manuka honey's antibacterial properties. Prepare to pay for the quality, experts say, with honey that has a UMF accolade costing more money. The global demand for Manuka honey reportedly exceeds the supply, and this has driven prices up. High demand has also created a black market with some cheaper products being mixed with regular honey or even corn syrup, which is very bad. But is Manuka honey really good for you? You So various organizations looked into it and reported previously on how Manuka honey dressings could ward off infections after an operation. But university scientists alternated eight nanolayers of medical-grade Manuka honey with polymers, and Manuka honey has a negative charge while polymers are positive. Together, these created an electrostatic nanocoating that inhibited the growth of bacteria on surgical meshes. While this may sound promising, the honey was medical-grade and therefore had impurities removed. This makes it distinctly different from the stuff available in the supermarket or online. Many also swear by Manuka honey when they feel a cold or flu coming on. With these exclusively being caused by viruses, the antibacterial properties of the expensive sweetener should, in theory, do nothing to combat infections. Scientists from universities in Japan, though, found that Manuka honey inhibited the reproduction of flu virus in the laboratory. The research teams on this also found that Manuka honey was effective against the chickenpox virus when tested on human skin cancer cells. Both Manuka honey and ordinary honey have been known to act against the herpes virus as well, with the latter also speeding up the healing of recurrent genital lesions caused by the infection. Rather than forking out on the expensive sweetener, regular honey may be enough to calm an irritating cough as well. Then, scientists from universities in Israel gave 139 coughing children either 2.5 milliliters of honey or an over-the-counter cough suppressant. 24 hours later, those given honey saw their cough frequency score go down significantly more than the other youngsters. When it comes to Manuka's ACE card, there's little evidence that the antibacterial properties survive the gastrointestinal tract or benefits a person's health when eaten, BBC reported. It is also important not to overindulge because honey contains around 5 grams of sugar per teaspoon. So if you keep eating it, there's going to be a lot of sugar that you're consuming. So they also want to let you know to use caution with those little ones eating the honey because it can contain properties of botulism, which may be much more concentrated for little ones that don't have the systems to be able to tolerate or fight off things within the honey. So use caution, folks. Next article. I found this one very interesting. 
especially in light of celebrations that people have had going on with the new year and all kinds of other stuff. But I found this article called What the Health Baby Undergoes Surgery After Choking on Christmas Confetti. Gail Johnson originally wrote this article and it came out on Yahoo Canada Style. Doctors are once again reminding parents that some holiday decor can be dangerous for young kids. And this is after a nine-month-old girl choked on a plastic confetti star. Now, you'd think these confetti stars would not be big enough for someone to be able to choke on. But in fact, the tiny piece of plastic lodged in the infant's throat and went undetected for 11 days before doctors eventually noticed it on a scan and performed surgery to remove it. The family first sought medical attention following a serious choking episode where blood was coming out of the baby's mouth. Doctors didn't detect any foreign bodies in her throat and sent her home, thinking she had choked on her own saliva. Sounds absolutely horrifying. But then two days later, the family returned to the emergency department. By then, the little girl had developed a fever, a cough, and rapid breathing. She was diagnosed with bronchiolitis and received inpatient treatment for three days. Then she went back home, but six days later returned to the hospital with the same symptoms. At that point, the doctor scanned her neck. Test finally showed what was going on. An abscess was pressing on her airways and there was a tiny five-pointed star stuck in her throat. She had surgery to drain the abscess and remove the decoration and she made a full recovery. But this case serves as a reminder to parents to be extra careful with any and all kinds of holiday decorations. Despite their flexible nature, the sharp points of confetti stars appear to increase the risk of lodgement in the upper aerodigestive tract, and their reflective surfaces attract the interests of young children with a propensity to place things in their mouth, doctors say. And they wrote this article titled, A Christmas Message, Be Careful of the Confetti Stars, the potential for similar cases to present themselves over these Christmas holidays exists not just the Christmas holidays, anytime you're using confetti, graduation, New Year's, any one of those that people could have issues with the confetti. So just use caution, folks. They say that more doctors and parents should be made aware of this possibility and the stars should carry warnings on the packaging. Health network providers and lecturers say that although this kind of outcome is highly unusual, the Christmas season can present certain challenges and risks for toddlers. Homes can be perfectly child-proofed for 11.5 months of the year. Then that changes around Christmas time with a tree in the corner and ornaments on the floor, bowls of peanuts on the coffee table, and a Lego set on the floor with bits and pieces, doctors say. Parents need to be cognizant that whatever their normal home environment is, it can sometimes change dramatically over the holidays. And for small children, this can present choking hazards. This case is a reminder that even really tiny things can potentially cause a problem. It is the season of glitter, sparkles, confetti, and all kinds of other things. And for very small kids, this can be potentially an issue. Doctors say that the most common items kids inhale are small toys and pieces of food. Symptoms of foreign body aspiration in the airways of children include cough, wheezing, a whistle sound while breathing, or strider, a high-pitched sound sometimes sounding like a barking dog or a seal. At times, children will have decreased or abnormal breathing sounds and unequal breathing on both sides of the chest. The problem parents and healthcare providers face is that these symptoms are very common with many viral illnesses in children. That is why a clear history from parents identifying a specific incident when a toddler put a toy in their mouth 
or if they choked when feeding is very important. The most definitive test for foreign body aspirations in the airways is called bronchoscopy. Under anesthesia, an expert in pulmonary diseases will pass a camera into the airways and try to visualize if a foreign body can be seen. This type of procedure carries risks for the child, though, including for their breathing, as well as from the anesthesia, doctors say. That is why other tests like an x-ray or visualizing with a fiber optic camera is preferred unless symptoms continue and deteriorate. When it comes to seeking medical care, doctors say patients should trust their gut feeling. They are a big believer in instincts. If a parent has a feeling something is not right with their child, that is something they should listen to. For symptoms that don't get any better or if they're getting worse in any way, to have that reassessed makes perfect sense. Very interesting. Be aware of it. Be cautious, folks, when you're using those confetti products or very small, tiny, sharp products that are similar to the little stars that we spoke about earlier. Use caution, folks. Make sure those are all cleaned up. Make sure your little ones aren't in the area and able to pick those up and put them in their mouth. Next article. I found this one interesting as well in light of the season and in light of how much people usually drink during the holidays. And granted, the holidays are now over, but I think it's kind of important to highlight this issue yet again. This article is called Binge Drinking and Heavy Alcohol Consumption May Damage the Heart, and Linda Carroll originally wrote this article on Reuters. Binge drinking and heavy alcohol consumption can damage the heart muscle, a new study suggests. In an analysis of data from nearly 3,000 adults from northwest Russia, researchers found that heavy drinking and binging were associated with increased levels of blood biomarkers that indicate damage to heart tissue. This came out in the Journal of the American Heart Association, but new studies show that heavy drinking leads to damage of the structure and function of the heart. Even though you may not experience symptoms right away, it increases the risk of heart problems in the future, doctors say. There are two main possible mechanisms that could explain how heavy drinking might be damaging the heart. The first one is related to increases in blood pressure due to heavy alcohol use. In turn, high blood pressure damages the structures and function of the heart. Second, alcohol can directly affect heart muscles by causing changes in its cell metabolism. To take a closer look at the impact of heavy drinking, researchers recruited 2,479 adults from Russia, as well as 278 patients being treated in a clinic for alcohol abuse. The researchers grouped the 2,479 community-dwelling volunteers aged 35 to 69 into four categories related to alcohol consumption levels. They determined categories based on volunteers' self-reported drinking habits. Overall, volunteers fell into the category of harmful or heavy drinking if they reported behaviors like having six or more drinks on one occasion, feeling hungover or drunk, needing a first drink in the morning, having experienced adverse consequences in their personal lives because of drinking, or having a family member or loved one who is concerned about their drinking habits. The difference between harmful and hazardous drinkers depended on the answers to these three questionnaires, and volunteers found to have a dangerous drinking problem on two or three questionnaires were categorized as harmful drinkers, as compared to those who identified on all three questionnaires who were characterized as hazardous drinkers. At the beginning of the study, participants' blood was tested for levels of three biomarkers that had been associated with heart damage. Volunteers being treated at the clinic for alcohol abuse had the highest levels of all three biomarkers compared to non-problem drinkers in the general population. Their high-sensitivity cardiac 
markers were elevated. When researchers looked at former drinkers and never drinkers separately, the results didn't change. The same was true when they excluded people with a history of heart attack from the analysis. Still, the researchers note one limitation of the study is their inability to account for the effects of smoking. The study also looked at a single point in time and was not designed to prove cause and effect. In addition, the new study has a major weakness. Researchers say... Drawing conclusions from measurements of biomarkers without knowing a patient's actual outcomes, like whether they went, to, went on to have a heart attack or heart failure, is difficult, they explained. Very, very interesting article. And finally, we're going to end this one with cancer patient in Romania dies after catching fire during surgery. Rachel Grumman Bender wrote this article, and it came out on Yahoo Lifestyle. A woman in Romania undergoing surgery for pancreatic cancer was accidentally set on fire, resulting in her death. Doctors used an alcohol-based disinfectant for the December 22nd procedure and then tried to operate using an electric scalpel. This sparked and caused a fire. The 66-year-old woman sustained burns on 40% of her body and died a week later, according to BBC News. In the meantime, the family of the Romanian woman, who according to BBC News was reportedly told there had been an accident, is still seeking more information from hospitals in Bucharest. We found out some details from the press when they were broadcast on TV stations, the family said. We aren't making any accusations. We just want to understand what happened. Romania's health minister and a cardiovascular surgeon called the incident traumatic, and in a statement shared by BBC, they said, We hope to learn from this troubling episode. Both myself and the Ministry of Health team that I coordinate with will do everything possible to find out the truth. But others say that this incident could have been avoided. The surgeons should have been made aware that it is prohibited to use an alcohol-based disinfectant during surgical procedures performed with electric devices. Electric scalpels in particular are surgical instruments that use high-frequency oscillations in the form of a tiny electric arc at the point of cutting through or cutting away tissues. And as electric scalpels make an incision, they simultaneously sterilize the wound and cauterize it or steal blood vessels. However, this isn't the first time an incident like this happened. According to a 2007 Japanese study, during an operation on an 80-year-old woman with colon cancer, a spark of the electric scalpel ignited the alcoholic antiseptic. The woman suffered some second and third degree burns on her body and received skin grafts two weeks after the surgery. She was released from the hospital after nearly two months. An alcoholic antiseptic is the most useful and has an immediate effect for preoperative disinfection of the skin, according to CDC guidelines. However, electric scalpels and alcoholic use are always accompanied with the risk of ignition and sufficient caution is required. As a 2010 study points out, there are antiseptic agents out there with strong inflammatory abilities used for skin preparation, but these study authors also emphasize that incidents like these are rare, writing, surgical fire is a rare complication during the operative period, but it is a severe complication when it does occur. Can you imagine? You never think that when you go into surgery that that would be a possible outcome. <laughs> that is so crazy. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the podcast for the day. This is the point where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We are at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. We will throw that into the show notes for you guys. You can also follow us on social media. 
we are at podcast.addict. And that is the handle for both our Twitter and our Instagram. We post pictures as we find them for a lot of these particular cases. But please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye!